Today, you are going to get a front row seat to the memorable Springbok career of Pat Lambie. Pat, welcome to Front Row Rugby. Thanks very much, Pete. Thanks for having me on your show. It's only a pleasure. Now, just before we get started, let's take a look at this week's trivia question. In 2010, the Springboks played Australia and New Zealand six times in the Tri-Nations. How many did the box win? Now, if you know the answer to the question, you can put it in the comment section down below, and we'll also find out if Pat knows the answer, but we'll do that at the end of our conversation. Pat, I'd like to begin, as it turns out, in 2010. Talk to me about how you were feeling when you first found out that you'd been called up to the Springbok squad. Yes, arguably the best day of my life. Um, we had just finished playing in the Curry Cup final, came off the field, um, the Sharks had won, and so I was celebrating with teammates and one of the SRAB officials came over and whispered in my ear that I was going to go on the end of your tour, um, which would have been my first selection to the Springbok. So it just, uh, yeah, I guess doesn't get all that much better than that in terms of how you're feeling um, after coming off rugby field and, and hearing the news. So you made your debut against Ireland. Did Peter de Villiers talk to you in the week leading up to that about you possibly coming on? Yes, it was actually a very interesting um, kind of debut week. Jean de Villiers was nursing a groin injury. And so I ran all the players at inside centre and was actually even given a jersey with number 12 on it in case Jean um, didn't make it for kickoff on the on the Saturday evening or, you know, pulled up in the warm-up or something. Um, so as it turns out, he was fit to play and managed to get through the entire match. But I... Man, uh, I, I was, um, you know, put on as a replacement for I think about the last fifteen or, or twenty minutes at fly half. So, um, again, a, a really, really special evening, and and that whole period of my life and career was just a whirlwind. It was from, you know, one week to the next, sort of pinching yourself: is this real or not? It's interesting that you mentioned that you were training to possibly play at centre in that match. Obviously, we know you better as a fly-half and or as a fullback. You also played on the wing for the Springboks. I accept that a lot of those occasions were with you coming off the bench. But just talk to me, in terms of versatility, what was your favourite position? I think in the end, I'd have to say fly-half was my favourite position. I think I ended up playing most of my club rugby in that position. I enjoyed getting my hands on the ball, um, being the decision maker, having the kicking responsibilities. Um, I grew up playing most of my rugby at fullback. And so um, I also did love that position and the, the freedom that, that that it offered and a little bit more time and space. Um, which I, I would argue that some of my um, better playing qualities were more suited to being a fly half. Um, I would also argue that I um, probably got a you know, few extra look-ins uh, with some team selections because of the fact that I could play in a few different positions. That's very interesting, just talking about the versatility. If I've counted correctly, you played 56 test matches for the Springboks and 33 of those were coming off the bench. Do you think that there was an element of your versatility that caused coaches not to necessarily know what to do with you? No, I don't. I Like I said, I think that I um, maybe scored a, a few extra test matches because I could cover more than one position um, sitting on the bench. But I think I, the fact that I had more um, caps coming off the bench versus 
starting tests, I think the the coaches at the time through my career had other players that they preferred in the starting lineup. So um, for whatever reasons those were, um, that's, in my view, that's why um, more of my tests were off the bench than rather starting. It's actually interesting, Pat, because I had Tennis Dalport on this show quite a few episodes ago, and he was also a man who could play in many different positions across the back line. And he told me that his advice to youngsters would be to embrace that versatility, play in as many different positions, because what it means is that you're always involved. You're always in the team, or at least on the bench, and then you'll come on. What would your advice be to youngsters? Yeah, my advice would be the same thing. Um, I think certainly in age group rugby, if you... Uh, can develop skills that are required in multiple positions. I think all around you become more of a complete rugby player. You also understand how it feels to be in a different position and uh, the benefits of, um, you know, having players around you who who understand you, you know, what, what those positions demand. Um, and, you know, we saw in the most recent World Cup, but professional rugby nowadays is very much a 23-man effort um, I think when I first started playing, if you weren't in the fifth, starting 15, you were seen as a reserve and a backup player, not necessarily an impact player or a player who had a, a very um, you know, clear job and responsibility to do to come onto the field and to finish the game off or to change the game or to speed it up or slow it down um, or do something different. And nowadays, it very much is a collective, full 23, everyone knows that um, they are they are important to the success of the team. And so if you can be involved in any which way, whether that's in the starting lineup or as, a, as an impact player or coming off the bench, uh, in today's modern game, um, everyone has their place. I'm going to come back to that sort of bomb squad element that you're discussing there in a moment. But the first thing that I want to do is just go back to your debut against Ireland. We played against Wales and then we played against Scotland shortly after that. And just before the Scotland match, there was some controversy where two of our players, I believe it was, tested positive for something called methylhexenamine. As a youngster in the squad, what was going through your mind at that stage? Yeah, it was a very interesting week that, and if I remember correctly, it was um, it was an energy drink that was handed out in the change room to every single player who wanted it. And it just so happened those two players were the ones whose numbers were drawn for the random um, drug test post the Wales game. Um, so it was a big shock to the rest of us because it could very easily have been any one of us that had taken a sip of that drink. Um so, yes, um, not an easy week. It's never easy when there are distractions like that for management and players when you are building up to another important test match. Um, but I just remember feeling relief that it was not me who was you know, in that, in that position. So let's move on to 2011, your first start for the Springboks. It was against the All Blacks in Wellington. And just, again, on that versatility and that bomb squad uh, topic that we were talking about. I've had a couple of box on this show, uh, Franco Smith, for example, who said that he felt that it was only when he started for the Springboks for the first time that he felt that he was truly a bock. Did you feel the same way? Yes, I would say so. Um, I, you know, I think that's, that's everyone's ambition and dream to be, you know, to hold a starting position um, for a season or two or for a year or two or, or for many seasons and many years. Um, 
so yes, I was very um, excited when you know I learned that I was going to get a, my first start. It was quite daunting. We were deemed to be the the B team sent over prior to the Rugby World Cup, and the the A team were left in South Africa in a in a preparation camp, um, and we were playing against a very much full strength uh, All Black side. Nonetheless, it was still. Um, you know, an opportunity I wanted to try and grab with both hands and very proud moments. Um, and yeah, a cold, windy night in Wellington. Um, we held our own for a little bit, um, but I think the score ran away from us in the end, if I remember correctly. I'm going to stay in 2011 and stay in Wellington. We uh, played there at the Rugby World Cup uh, in the quarterfinals against Australia. I think that most South Africans know that now notoriously as the Bryce Lawrence show. What were your feelings after that match? Well, it was heartbreaking and it was eye-opening to be in that change room. Um, There were a number of players who were part of the 2007 winning Rugby World Cup team who were trying to go back to back in 2011 and to see these heroes and these previous World Cup winners, you know, breaking down in tears and, you know, extremely devastated and in, in disbelief. It was, it was very, very difficult to, to take it all in. And again, it was, um, it, 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 it was, it was so it made even more difficult in that you know rugby world cup policy is that once you are knocked out of the tournament within 24 hours you've got to be out of the country so i think our, we we were back in the change room say at 11 p.m. it was only a 9 o'clock kickoff something crazy um back at the hotel after midnight and at half past 3 the first group of players were being bussed off to the airport to leave the country so there wasn't even a chance to have a real post mortem um you know, to to do any reflection, and we were sent home in four different groups, um, all arriving back at different times, and so just um, yeah, you know, feels like you, like your heart's being ripped out of your chest, and your your dreams are being stomped on, um, and uh, and nowhere to deal with it. So um, yeah, uh, one of the worst evenings of of my career, and I'm sure echoed by most of the players, if not all of the players in that change room that night. I can just imagine. So in 2012, Heineke Mayer came in to replace Peter de Villiers. Talk to me a little bit about the differences between the two men as coaches as you experienced them. Well, obviously, I'm eternally grateful to Peter de Villiers who um, picked me for the first time and gave me my first, uh, I don't know how many it was, 10 or 11 test caps. And um, he had uh, confidence in me, obviously, um, to be his starting fullback and some big rugby world cup matches. Um, and I think in that group of players, there was a, a really strong core group of senior players who had all been there, done that, you know, won a world cup. Um, and so it felt like um, Peter was comfortable giving a lot of authority and responsibility to those senior players. Haneke was a little bit different. He obviously inherited a, a it was a younger group of players. There was still some, players with a lot of experience um, um, but he was very much more in charge and uh, calling the shots and his management team were you know the ones who were strategizing and and Heineke was very particular in how he wanted to play he had his blueprint and it was that way or or you were not part of the group um, and uh, and so yeah he evolved over a few years as well I mean originally he did not 
allow any offloads. And by the end, I think, uh, um, you know, players weren't being dropped or reprimanded for for offloading um, as long as they stuck, I guess. Um, but yeah, that was that, those are the two biggest differences I think where it was very much senior players with Peter de Villiers and very much um, became more coaching staff with Heineke. Hey, if you're enjoying this video, why not consider becoming a patron? It's my dream, guys, to do this full-time, and with a small financial contribution, you can help me realize that dream. The link and the QR code is appearing on your screen right now, and I'll also put it down in the description area for you to go and click on at a later stage if you would like to do so. And by becoming a patron, I promise there will be great benefits for members. Now let's get back to the interview. One of the highlights of the Mayor era was that sensational victory in Brisbane in 2013 against the Wallabies. Talk to me about being involved in an occasion like that. Yeah, so um, to win a test match in Australia or New Zealand is is huge. And, um, uh, you know, we were, we were on a good run then and... Um, it's just uh, all the all the hard work and preparation. When your plans from the week come to fruition on a weekend, uh, and you end up winning a test, um, you know, in difficult, trying circumstances and places that are hard to win, it it's that much more rewarding. And obviously, it gives the group a whole lot of confidence, and it um, it helps create a really, really nice, happy atmosphere amongst the amongst the whole group. We've seen over the years how difficult it is for South Africa to go to Australia and New Zealand every year in the Tri-Nations and now the Rugby Championship. I think we've got something like a 90% losing record over there. I've had a lot of box on the show talk about the reasons why it is so difficult to go over there, the time difference, uh, you know, traveling across so many time zones, for example, and obviously the two teams are formidable opponents and they have been over the decades. What do you think made the difference that day? Um... It's uh, over 10 years ago, so um, I'm going to have to really think about this. I can only imagine, um, like I said, it was we had a really good plan and it was executed perfectly and, um, you know, we we just did all the right things, ball bounced our way, um, which is what you need when you're playing away from home. You know, hostile environments, Rubber the green doesn't always go your way. Um, crowd gets behind the home team. Unfamiliar um, hotels and change rooms. A little bit of jet lag. You know, your body clock's not quite the same. Stiffness from a long international travel. You know, all of these things um, are against you. You need you need a few things to go your way on on the day, and it seemed like that that was the case. Nice to be in the case. A very, very happy day in the history of Springbok Rugby and another memorable occasion about a year later at Ellis Park. I'm sure you'll remember this one well, when you kicked the winning penalty to beat the All Blacks. Now, Andre Pretorius also kicked a winning penalty against the All Blacks. That was in 2006 in Rustenburg. And I asked him about that and he told me that he was just so tired after having played for 80 minutes that he wasn't really all that nervous. He was just focusing on on, uh, slotting the penalty. What was going through your mind at that stage? Yeah, a bit different for me. I'd only just come onto the field. Um, it had been a an end-to-end test match, um, try-scoring fest, and um, yeah, some players were out on their feet at that moment in time. I just remember that the passage of play had ended up around the 22-meter line, um, the All Blacks 22-meter line, so the Springboks on it on attack when when play stopped, and then the 
foul tackle um, was played on the big screen, which caught the ref's eye. And he then obviously went upstairs to review it. I remember feeling quite relieved that the mark for the penalty kick was not slap bang in front of the post on the 22 meter line, but, you know, way back inside our own half. Um, It kind of makes you feel like not everybody is expecting you to get the kick, whereas 22 meters out, slap bang in front, you should do that with your eyes closed as a professional player. Um, So um, that was my first kind of uh, feeling, my first thought. Obviously, it took a few minutes for the decision to finally be, be made and the mark to be to be given. But that by then, I had um, I had cleared my mind and I only had one thing going through my head, thankfully, and that was to just put a great strike on the ball. So I was just in my head saying, great strike, great strike, great strike. Um, and at Ellis Park, on a beautiful, crisp evening like that, a bit of adrenaline, um, the ball sails through the air, no wind. Um, and I think everyone in the crowd kind of blowing um, the ball through the posts as well. So uh, that was a great moment. And um, I'm grateful to Supersport for always playing it on repeat on their adverts and on their little snippets here and there. Um, and obviously in the change room after that test match, it was um elation and huge joy and excitement it was the final match of the rugby championship and the all blacks had been on a long winning streak and we as a group had come close to beating them a couple of times in the few tests before but hadn't quite managed to to get it over the line and so there was a big celebration that evening we were all heading back to our clubs the following day um so it was a yeah it was just a, a very very cool cool moment very much so indeed. So now we'll go from a high moment to a low moment uh, into 2015 at the Rugby World Cup. And I know you know what I'm going to ask you now. That opening match against Japan, what happened? Look, um, probably many different schools of thoughts on this. Um, we certainly did not underestimate them or or think that it was going to be a walk in the park. We, we had players in our group at the time who were playing their rugby in Japan. Um and we knew that they were going to hang on and hang on. Um, and it might only be in the last 10 minutes where we get some breathing room. Unfortunately for us, um, I believe that um, there were a whole bunch of substitutions made between 50 and 60 minutes. Um, and I don't believe that um, the um, those changes were the best thing to have happened at the time. Um the pace of the game and all of that, I think, you know, took everyone a little bit of time to adjust. And it's just so happened that Japan scored a try and kind of got their tails up. And, you know, you could feel the belief amongst their players growing with every minute that passed closer to 80 minutes, you know, creeping up on us on the scoreboard. And then they scored a try after the 80th minute to, to win the game. So, that's that's professional sport. Anything can happen on the day. Um, that, that's that's my view on it. Um, I personally, I would have loved to have sat on the field longer. I felt like we were in control. Um, yes, uh, this, you know, we were ahead on the scoreboard, not very far ahead, but we were up by by five or six points, I think, maybe two scores ahead. Um, and it felt like it was that moment where we could score again and run away with it, or if we let them score, suddenly it's going to be a tight tight one right to the 80th minute. And it was the latter that happened. Um, and the week that followed was 
the worst week of I think all of our lives. Um, and uh, and you yeah, are very proud that the group bounced back after that after that and still made it. You know, ended up coming third in the tournament with the bronze medal. We did bounce back well to finish third, as you say there. Your second Rugby World Cup, how would you compare the two? Yeah, interesting. So first one, 2011, I was a newbie. I was there with wide eyes. I was just elected to be in the playing group or in the traveling squad. Didn't know if I was going to get any game time or not. In fact, you know, I arrived at the World Cup with a, a sore shoulder and I wasn't fit for selection in the first pool game. Um, and just so happened we had some injuries and I got a crack and ended up playing fullback from game two onwards. And so just soaking it in, um, yeah, just overjoyed to be in the playing group, you know, in New Zealand um, at a World Cup. And then in 2015, um, yeah, a little bit more experience, kind of had, had a taste of it, um, started the first game, we lost the first game, then it was kind of felt like I was... Um, fighting for a position in the in the playing 23 thereafter and obviously the whole playing group was under ex- an extreme amount of pressure and um, media having a field day with the fact that the Springboks had lost to Japan um, so yeah different altogether and yet still coming so close you know losing narrowly to the All Blacks in the semi-final at Twickenham and I really felt like, you know, we could have very easily won that test and gone on to win the World Cup. And the same is true in 2011. You know, had we got over the line with Australia in the quarterfinal, I think um, with the group that we had, the All Blacks were vulnerable. Um, and there was I don't think there was anyone that was going to, going to stop us. So kind of uh, two different experiences um, and both with, endings that you have to think uh, you know what could have been or how different they could have been speaking of what could have been the following year Alistair Katia became the new Springbok coach and we really struggled in 2016 what would you put that down to yes I think Alistair um, he again inherited a young playing group there was a little bit of a clean out after the 2015 World Cup we lost some some experience um and I also think that his hands were tied in a number of ways in terms of the players that he could select, when he could host training camps, how he could get alignment camps going, um, perhaps some staff, his travel schedules, hotels that we, we were staying in. So he had a, a difficult task um, from day one and he only gave up his best. And I think, again, it was unfortunate that um, – uh, you know, the, we, we lost that the first test under his charge against Ireland, which, you know, and it was a tough year where a lot of questions were being asked and there were players trying to find themselves, there were coaches trying to find themselves. The Springboks as a group were trying to find themselves and, and, a, and a new identity almost. Um, so, yeah, a tricky year for, for SA Rugby. And um, again, we, we bounced back. We certainly did. But I have to ask you, uh, since I did ask you about Heineke Meyer and Peter de Villiers earlier, how would you describe Alistair Katsia as a coach? So Alistair is one of the nicest human beings that you will find and um, very astute as a coach could with people management. Um, and he had some really good assistant coaches around him that he was relying on. 
again, professional sports and momentum and um, belief within the group. These are all things that kind of have to go your way to string together a bunch of results. And unfortunately that didn't happen in the, within the first year of his tenure. Um, but like I said, I think that he um, drew the short straw with regards to how he, you know, he wanted to do things. And, um, and so it can't all, you know, all the, the, the results or the, or the lack of results can't all fall on his lap. I have to also ask you how much of a low moment was that defeat to Italy? Yes. So again, that was a very interesting test match. We had Brendan Fenter, who was uh, an assistant coach in our group, but he was also consulting for Italy at the time. Um, so just, uh, yeah, just weird. Um, and again, not too dissimilar to the Japan game. We knew that it was going to be a hostile environment and that Italy were going to be um, really up for this game and we're maybe going to hang in there for 60, 70 minutes. Um, and it was at that, you know, 60, 70 minute mark when we were the ones who needed to be scoring and taking the game away from them when the opposite happened and they, you know, got themselves into the game with a sniff. And before we knew it, the final whistle had blown and we were down on the scoreboard. So, um, yeah, not a, not a happy change room by any stretch of the imagination and there was a whole there were a whole lot of SA rugby delegates who were in the stands at the time and we all have an image of them marching off to the coaches after the game and words being had and um, which is very unsettling as a as a playing group um, again everyone in the group was trying their best we were you know adopting a, a more attacking mindset um New players, um, less experienced than previous years, new coaches, and just not clicking at that point in time. And that end of year two was pretty much the end for you as well. Just 26, I believe you were. How disappointed were you that it ended there? Yeah, extremely disappointed. I would still love to be playing right now. I'm you know, only 33 and feel like as a fly half, as a general, perhaps your best years are in your 30s. Um, but 2016 was really a challenging year for me. Um, started off with injuries at the Sharks. I think I had a shoulder injury. Recovered from that and, you know, played myself into some form. Got selected for the Springboks. And then I got my starting opportunity um, in the fly half position against Ireland in that first test under Alistair Kutsia. And I thought, oh, wow, okay. As a coach, you might give me a, a crack at a run of test matches in South Africa in the fly half position. And, um, you know, I can, can notch up a few more starts and, you know, put my name in the hat for the big games. Um, and I, I got a serious concussion after a few minutes. And then um, in hindsight, perhaps came back to playing too soon after that first big concussion, wasn't playing at my best. Still, Alistair was backing me and gave me opportunities at fullback and a couple at fly half as well. Um, and so, you know, I got my last test off the bench against Wales um, at the Millennium Stadium. And I remember coming off that field thinking, gosh, this, um, you know, I really, really want to perform better um, in a Springbok jersey again. And unfortunately, never, ever got the chance to do so. 
You mentioned the concussion there, Pat, and uh, obviously concussions are what led to you ultimately retiring from rugby a few years later. And it's a hot topic at the moment, uh, not just in rugby, but in, in world sport. But if we just zero in on rugby, there are a lot of parents these days who feel uneasy or reluctant to allow their children to play rugby. What would you say to them? Look, I think that World Rugby are trying to make the game as safe for us as possible, as safe for players as possible. They're implementing new laws to try and bring tackle heights down. Um, they obviously are clamping down, you know, strongly and firmly on any foul play. So you can't challenge a player in the air. Uh, you know, shoulder to neck or head is just completely a no-go. And and I think what that's doing is that from... Um, from young age group level, coaches are having to actually coach players better so that they get their tackle height right, so that they get their ball carrying positions right, so that they get their heads on the correct side of the tackle more often than not, um, which will make our game safer. It is a contact sport. There are um, uncontrolled contact situations all the time. And unfortunately, um, you know, our bodies are made up of elbows and knees and hips and things. And so sometimes we are going to get heads in the wrong places. But for the most part, um, World Rugby do seem to make it, be making a big effort to make this game safer for us. And I think more than that as well, you know, medically now we we are better understanding concussions and head injuries and um, we are better managing players who suffer from concussions and head injuries. So in the past, players would have suffered multiple concussions without anyone blinking an eye and, and um, long-term consequences can be quite um, quite scary. So, um, yeah, I think the game is heading in the right direction in that regard. And I'm certainly, if my boys want to play rugby, not going to stop them from doing so. And how are you actually doing these days? Yes, I'm doing well, thanks. It took me over a year and a half um, after my last match to get rid of all the symptoms I was suffering from. So I had a really draw, a really long and drawn out post-concussion syndrome. And, um, you know, I was, I was suffering from a low-grade migraine daily, um, unable to do any strenuous exercise, lift heavy weights, um, mood was low. Um, honestly, I was depressed and... Uh, and so, yeah, a year and a half after my last match, I finally woke up one morning feeling normal. Didn't feel like I had a hangover anymore. Didn't feel like I had been hit with a baseball bat over my head while I was sleeping. Um, and since that moment, I, I've been good. I've, um, yeah, I've got um, full health back. I can run and swim and surf and um, do all those sports, just not contact sport. That's great. And I have to ask you quickly as well, did Rusty Rasmus give you a call when he became the Bok coach? He did. And at the time I was playing for Racing 92 in France and, um, you know, uh, the team that I was in was top of the log and we, were play we played in the Heineken Cup final and we were top of, the, um, top of the log of the top 14 in the French League. And, you know, I was rubbing shoulders with the likes of Dan Carter and Joe Rocathoco and a whole bunch of French internationals. And so playing really good rugby, not worried uh, about any pressure or, or um, you know, just going back to enjoying enjoying myself. And so we were in comms at the end of 2017 and this, the beginning of 2018. Um, and then unfortunately, that's when 
had a serious knee injury and went through the whole rigmarole of um, seeing head doctors and um, and didn't get back onto the playing field. So I'd like to think that I was part of his plans at that point in time. I have no doubt that most of us would agree. So, Pat, who was your toughest opponent? Uh, I guess it would go back to that 2011 test match in Wellington, my first start. I was lined up opposite Dan Carter um, for New Zealand, and obviously he was a maestro and was uh, making ball carries and line breaks and offloads and cross kicks and stepping and tackling and, you know, putting on a, on a show, just a complete player. So um, I have to say he was the, the toughest opponent to try and hold my own against. Bit of a funny question because you're obviously still young enough to be out there, but is there a current player who you admire? Very good question. I think I've been in awe of Cannon Moody. Um, I, I, you know, just his demeanor on the field in the World Cup matches that he played and his contributions I thought were exceptional. And um, I would have been really happy to have seen him in the starting lineup for um, all of those playoff games. And I'm sure we're going to see a lot more of him in the future. So um, he's one that jumps to mind for me. Is there a particularly funny moment that you can share with us from your time with the Springboks? Sure. Um, there are a few. Um, what's a good one, though? What's a good one? Um, yeah, maybe back to uh, New Zealand and 2011 Rugby World Cup. And we were preparing for a pool match. And um, the, 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 the reserves and the non-playing reserves all disappeared into the change room for 10 or 15 minutes before practice started and uh, came out being led by Butch James. And they were all strapped up and, and dressed up and they they then pretended to put on a, um, their own mock-up rendition of the haka, um, which was quite entertaining and, and hilarious. So, And it was meant in good spirits, not in any way to, um, you know, to show any disrespect to the haka, but it was, it was more to make us laugh and to create a, a happy atmosphere before training started. So I've got a, a very clear and funny picture in my mind of, of Butch and, and his counterparts. I can just imagine. And then finally, what are you up to these days? Yeah, and I work for a property development company in KwaZulu-Natal. We do residential lifestyle estates mostly. And so are taking old sugarcane farms and um, old unzoned pieces of land, converting them, rezoning them and developing new housing estates within them. Sounds good to me. Pat, we're going to finish off with the trivia question. In 2010, the Springboks played Australia and New Zealand six times in the Tri-Nations. How many did the box win? Okay, um, so I know I played in three of those. We won one and lost two. So I'm going to guess that we won one and lost two of the others. So two out of six. It, it was actually a little bit worse than that. We only won one of the six. Uh, we played the All Blacks three times and lost all three. Played the Wallabies three times and won one and lost two. So uh, not a good Tri-Nations for us. And a bit of a reversal because the year before we had won five and lost just the one. Am I? But we'll leave it there, I think. Pat, let me say it was lovely having you on Front Row Rugby today. An absolute pleasure. And thank you so much for sharing all of those stories from the past. And hopefully we can have you on again in the future. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for the invitation and all the best to you, Pete.